Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Tonight we're going to be in 1 Kings 6. Well, the last thing that we saw was that when we were in 1 Kings before, that everything is going well in the nation of Israel. It's a time of prosperity, and Solomon is the king, and he's starting to get the materials ready, the building materials for the temple. And today, or this evening, we're going to look at the actual building of the temple, the intricacies of the structure, and the symbolism behind it. God didn't just say, hey, build me a building. I'm going to hang out in that building. He didn't say that. He, there was a lot that had to go into the temple. There was, it had to be made perfect, how they carved the, uh, the images and how they you know, set up the structure. And there was a reason for all this. So what is the, te- the temple? What's the tabernacle? The tabernacle basically was God telling Moses, you've you got to make this structure. Um, you know, sacrifices have to be instituted for the atonement of sin. And because you're going to be doing a lot of back and forth, you're going to be wandering and such, the tabernacle will be a, uh, a mobile structure. You know, you can fold it up, pack it up, take it with you when you move to the next place, and then set it back up again, like a, a tent sort of house with all the different furnishings inside. The temple was a permanent structure. So it was basically did everything that the tabernacle did, um, for the atonement of sins and the priests to doing their work, etc. But it was a permanent structure. And I'm going to do a little show and tell tonight, so you are in for a treat. Okay, so I'm going to start with 2 Chronicles 3.1. Just one verse there. 2 Chronicles 3.1 says, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. It offers a little more information than 1 Kings does. The Chronicles is usually from the standpoint of the the priests or the religious, the spiritual system. So he's supposed to do this in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So to stave off the plague, David purchased this threshing floor and he wanted to offer sacrifices to God. So he was kind of acting really as a mediator, as a type of Jesus Christ. Mount Moriah was also the place that Abraham was told to take Isaac, his only son at the time, um, well, his only son that God recognized, the son of the promise, and to sacrifice him on the mountain. And of course, God intervened. But you see Mount Moriah has a lot of significance there. So let's jump back into 1 Kings 6. We'll read the first four verses. It says, And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its width 20, its height 30 cubits. The vestibule in front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long across, and breadth of the house, and its width extended 10 cubits from the front of the house, and he made for the house windows with beveled frames. So we see that the temple's built, and we look at the dimensions. So basically this structure, this permanent structure, is 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high, with the cubit being about a foot and a half. 
There was a porch right in front of the temple, and that was 30 by 15 feet. And the court, or the temple was surrounded by this court area where the priests would do their, you know, their spiritual, you know, officiations and such. And we're going to, after I read the next few verses, we're going to look at some pictures. Verse 5, it says, Against the wall of the temple he built chambers all around, against the walls of the temple all around, both the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. Then he made side chambers all around it. The lowest chamber was five cubits wide, the middle was six cubits wide, and the third was seven cubits wide. For he made narrow ledges around the outside of the temple so that the support beams would not be fastened into the walls of the temple. This is, I'm going to talk about what an engineering feat this was for that time. And the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. The doorway of the middle story was on the right side of the temple. They went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third. So he built the temple and finished it, and he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar, and he built side chambers against the entire temple, each five cubits high. They were attached to the temple with cedar beams. So on the side of the temple were these chambers, not the front, but the sides. Um, and there was these chambers or rooms, and you would imagine that it was for storage for the priests where they would keep their equipment and such, um, protected from the elements. I kind of laughed. I was talking to Pastor Paul about doing this study, and it reminds me of our church. We've got all these back rooms and upper storage rooms and everything. There's no space wasted in this building. There's always there's all these secret passages and stairways, and it's kind of neat. And we, you know, sometimes we accumulate too much stuff, and we have to have a cleaning day and clear some of it out. But it is basically for storage. So it, I kind of chuckled when I thought of that. I don't want to make hay out of every single verse in here because I don't think it, that's what we should be doing. But for anyone who's in construction, anyone who's in building, engineering, this is actually pretty fascinating. Right? The rooms, the side chambers against the temple were not to interfere with the actual temple structure. God had his reasons for everything. So they couldn't take the side rooms. And you know, when you would, if, you were, if we were to attach a room, I did... In college, I did building houses. If we were to attach a structure to the side of the church, we would have to fasten it to the church. That's how you do it. And you build the frame, and it, it helps to lend uh, stability not only to this part, but to that part by attaching. God said, don't do that. They, these rooms were actually attached without being attached. So you could imagine the craftsmanship with the stone and, and how the, the ground had to be level. If it was leveled away from the building, it would lean, and there would be gaps. These guys were amazing back then. You know, it's, this, it's such a, a, a farce, a fallacy for people to say, you know, the whole evolutionary theory that men and women were so dumb back then and they had to evolve in their brains. When we start reading stuff about the Bible, the things they did without computers and without the tools that they have, it's actually fascinating. So to me, I'm reading this and I'm getting into it. I'm like, I've got to get them into it the way I'm into it. So it's not just a, reading a story about building a house. It's so much more to that. Verse 7, it says that you didn't hear a hammer or a chisel in the temple. They've excavated underground quarries, which is pretty fascinating. They actually, I tell you, Jerusalem is an amazing place. Uh, one day I got to get there. But every time somebody takes a, a shovel and puts it in the ground and starts digging, there's an, there are amazing things that they find in the Holy Land. They find old stones that were probably there from the site of the first temple that the Romans, Romans threw over the ravine. 
They find underground quarries where they were fastening these huge stones to actually put them on rollers and send them up the hill and start it. It's just amazing. All right, so let's, uh, <laughs> let's look at a few slides. Uh, if we could do the overhead first, the black and white one. So if this is, we're in a helicopter, this is an aerial view. These are the walls of the temple, okay? These are two pillars that we're going to talk about next Sunday and stairs that go up to this porch area, okay? These are those side chambers that I was telling you or reading about. They had steps in them and passageways and such, and these side, really, structures were attached without being attached to the temple proper. This is the holy place, okay, where the the lampstands are um, to give the light in the, in the evening and such, uh, the tables of showbread, which I'm going to talk about the symbolism, and the altar of incense, and this is the Holy of Holies. And these are the, I guess you could say in Hebrew, the cherub. Uh, we'll talk about that. The angels fastened with their wings outstretched, and this is the Ark of the Covenant. So the next slide, if we could. I'll explain all of what I'm talking about. Next slide would be the artist rendition of what Solomon's temple probably looked like from the outside. This is the labor that you would, this, not you would, unless you were a priest, the priests would do their ceremonial washings, okay, with, with the water from the laver. And this is, I guess, the artist rendition of how, you know, the, it was a very big structure, how the priests were compared to all these things. And this would be the altar of the burning of the uh, sacrifices. And this would be the entrance. And here would be the side structures um, attached to the main structure, okay? If we can go to the next slide. You know, it's one thing to read, but visual aids really, if you're listening on the CD, I apologize. Uh, I can probably get you a copy of these pictures. Uh, this would be the Ark of the Covenant, which would be in the Holy of Holies, the, the, the smallest room all the way in that only the high priest could enter once a year and he'd have to have the blood of the sacrifice. And this was before Christ, and you can see when you're leading, we have a few Jewish believers in our fellowship, actually a good number for our, our size church. When you're leading a Jewish person to Christ, it's great to use the Old Testament and say, well, what do you think that symbolizes? Well, what do you think? I've done that many a times. It's fascinating. And they actually, they get, they're hungry. You know, they want to know, what are you talking about? I, I didn't learn this in, in where I go. So, um, but here's the Ark of the Covenant which is basically a box overladen with gold. And here's the mercy seat, which was really a lid with two uh, angels fashioned on top of it, overlaid with gold. And here are the rods, uh, the poles, that went through uh, rings because the priests, nobody could touch this box because that was the place that God met Israel at. He would actually, his Shekinah glory, his physical presence would, he said, I would rest between the cherub. And we're going to talk about that too at the end a really good tool to use when you're witnessing the Jewish people. So it's in my notes. I'm not going to forget it, but you have to wait till the end. So it can't leave before then. Uh, <laughs> all right, so, so you got this. Anyway, the um, Ten Commandments were in here and the golden pot of manna and the uh, Aaron's rod that budded. If we can go to the last slide. And this is basically just a cutaway view. Uh, there would be a large uh, curtain, this veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place where the ark is right there. And this was the veil that when Christ died and gave up his last, we're going to talk about the crucifixion on Sunday. I, I can't wait to teach that. I mean, everything just makes sense when we talk about this on Sunday. Uh, when he gave up his spirit and when he died on the cross, this was this huge, thick, multi-layered material fabric uh, structure that separated these two important places, 
because nobody could go in here except the high priest only once a year and only with the blood of the sacrifice. Uh, but this veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom, which is really, it was supernatural, but it was God's way of saying, I'm going to be with people now. This is, this is a closer, you know, almost like degree, right? Before that, it was very, I guess you could say, I don't want to say impersonal, not in a bad way, but impersonal, not necessarily close personal. When the veil was torn, then there was a more personal relationship through Jesus Christ. And Revelation tells us that God said, I will dwell with my people. I will wipe away every tear from their eye. So we're gonna, it's going to be so exciting that there's another dispensation where God, we're even closer to God. Like he's our daddy, Abba, Father. Very exciting. Okay, let's go back to the reading of the scripture. I'm going to shore up some of these things. Um, so if you're struggling with them, we'll, we'll, we'll get it together here. Verse 11. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, concerning this temple which you are building, if, it's a conditional statement, if you walk in my statutes, exercise my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you which I spoke to your father David. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. I will dwell among them. I will be with them. God is everywhere, but he's saying that this is on, a, on an even better level where I'm going to actually be with them. What does that mean, God? You're everywhere. You're with us now. No, but it's, it's even better. And then, of course, with Christ, again, these, these levels, these continuing degrees of closeness with God, I'm going to seal you with my Holy Spirit. Believer comes to Christ. They're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's just that you realize, I think sometimes we take this stuff for granted, how close God actually is to us. He's right here. He's sealed us with his Holy Spirit. We, can't, we can go into re- remotest deserts, as dark as possible, without any people, and he's there with us. It's hard to believe, but it's true. Amen? <laughs> now, there seems to be a little bit of an interruption here. Okay, we're on a building project, and God now starts talking to Solomon about obeying his commandments. The only way I can ex- express this is a, as an interruption, but this is a good thing, because God's saying to Solomon, all right, before you continue this, before you get prideful, before you say, hey, I did this, I was the king, Solomon, focus, pay attention, me and you, we need to talk. We need to talk. You've got to continue this walk. You've got to walk in my statutes, my commandments. You've got to follow me. You can't go after foreign gods. Don't start multiplying your wives, and, and Solomon did. Don't start multiplying your horses, and Solomon did. But I believe Solomon started out really good. And God said, if you do these things in this relationship that you and I have, it's going to be good for the nation. If you set the bad example to the nation and they start following you and following false gods, you're not going to get the benefits of that relationship. And sometimes people get annoyed with that. Well, who does God think he is? God, there's the answer. <laughs> you know? I mean, seriously, if you're married to somebody and you have benefits of marriage and then you cheat, you commit adultery, and you go back to that spouse and go, what's the problem? You know, we're married. Yeah, but you, you're with somebody else. You, we, you can't have the same benefits. All the benefits, you know, not just selected ones. So God's the same way. He's like, if you have a relationship with me, there's benefits that come with our relationship. However, if you start going after idols and stuff, that's detestable. That's disgusting. They're not even real. And if they are, they rep- they're represented by demons. So guess what? I'm going to withdraw myself from this relationship. God respects himself. You know, I think sometimes modern ministry presents God in such a desperate, needy body about him, the needy Jesus. If you ever get to watch that, that's a great clip. This guy's a fiery preacher. 
Jesus isn't needy. He doesn't need us. We need him. And God respects himself. So he's telling Solomon it's a warning, but it's also a, an overture of love. With this relationship comes these amazing benefits and promises and so forth. I think today sometimes even in the church, you know, people want religion, they want a, a sense of spirituality, they want God's blessing. Hey, everybody wants answered prayer, right? But some people want all that and they, they don't want God. Yeah, it's in the church. Yeah, it was back then and in Israel. Yeah, it's unfortunately here today as well. Listen, as a parent, I can understand that. When I only have one kid, but, you know, I, I look at obedience as he loves me. I look at obedience as he respects me. I look at obedience as he trusts me. Those things are important to me as a father, right? God, God authored the perfect relationship, and our relationships aren't perfect, but we really try to emulate his relationship instead of just doing stuff. Verse 14, so Solomon built a temple and finished it, and he built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards from the floor of the temple to the ceiling. He paneled them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. Then he built the 20-cubit room at the rear of the temple from floor to ceiling with cedar boards. He built it inside as the inner sanctuary as the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies. And in front of the temple sanctuary was 40 cubits. The inside of the temple was cedar, carved with ornamental buds and open flowers. All was cedar. There was no stone to be seen. And he prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary, by the way, who was it? The first Indiana Jones, uh, Harrison Ford, many years ago. Uh, was it Raiders of the Lost Ark? Um, actually, was a pretty good rendition of the, of the Ark. You know, everybody was looking for the Ark. I mean, it's fantasy, but... Um, you, you got an interesting artistic kind of view of what it might have looked like. And some artists have done great jobs even in the slides. And um, even in the movie, it showed great power when the wrong person tried to open it up and, it, and God smote them, so to speak. Okay, the inner, verse 20, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold and overlaid the altar of cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. He stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, and he overlaid it with gold. The whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple. Also, he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. So you had the outside. Now we're looking at the inside. No expense spared. No corner forgotten. No detail missed on the inside. And I submit to you that the inside was more important than the outside. And, you know, that's a lesson for us as well. Sometimes we focus so much on our appearance that we don't work on the heart. Because actually the appearance is easier. Hair's a certain color, diet. You know, you, you, you feel you don't, you're aging, go to the doctor and let them squirt some stuff in you. You know, you, you, your teeth are crooked, you get braces. I mean, this is what people do. You want to look good, you go to a fashion store and... Wear the, the right clothes. But the inside is far more important than the outside. So we're going to talk about the outside, but I'm going to tell you that when we go into the inside and the furnishings, just like the human heart, right, where God meets us on the inside, not the outside, that's where it really is at with God. We read a lot about gold. Now, gold is interesting. Um, usually our jewelry is maybe 18 carat or whatever carat, 
But if you ever saw pure gold, like 100%, it's very soft. That's why they cut it with other metals for jewelry. But pure gold, hammered out, you know, smoothed out, is almost blinding. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And uh, the temple had gold on it, and people would talk about when the sun shone, and, and all these historical writers looking at the temple at sunrise. It was just a majestic sight. It was beautiful. So you have this gold everywhere. What's it about the gold? Well, gold is precious, right? It always has been for thousands of years. It's a picture of royalty, and it represented deity as much as possible as anything could represent deity on the earth. Remember, we live in a fallen creation. So God found, he said, I want the best thing that's most important to you, most precious, and that's what I want you to put in that temple. You can't chip it off. You can't sell it. It's my house, and I want the best for my house. Because why? He's God, and he's entitled to that. Unfortunately, some today make an improper application in the prosperity gospel that this was a good thing, and look, Solomon had all this gold. First of all, it wasn't, God, it wasn't Solomon's house. We're going to read in the next chapter, Solomon had his own house. This was God's house. Solomon did not own the temple. It was God's place where he met his people. And again, it, was, it had to be... I'm going to read a scripture to you. Hebrews 8, 4 through 5. I love how the New Testament gives commentary on the Old Testament. Hebrews 8, 4 and 5 says this. He's going on about, um, speaking about Jesus and uh, the better covenant and, and Jesus the high priest. Uh, and it says, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he, God said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Moses, he gave, in, in other words, if you're going to build a structure and all there is is dirt, you have an engineer come in. He has his little protractors and his rulers and all this stuff, and he, he builds this thing, and he puts it on paper, almost like the first slide, but with more numbers and arrows and stuff. And the engineer gives the blueprints to the builder. The builder takes it, gets the people ready and all the materials, and says, okay, we have to build it. Well, how do we build it? According to this. You can't deviate from it. So God gave Moses the blueprints for the tabernacle, which would also be reiterated to Solomon for the temple. Okay? And it was supposed to be a copy of heavenly things. So God said, do it right. Don't mess it up. And there were certain measurements that you couldn't deviate from. Verse 23, going back to 1 Kings 6. So, in other words... Everything that this wasn't just a house, it had some type of serious spiritual symbolism or significance. Verse 23. Inside the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim, which were angels of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. One wing of the cherub was five cubits, and the other wing of the cherub, five cubits. Ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other, and the other. Cherub was ten cubits. Both cherubim were of the same size and shape. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was the other cherub. Um, then he set the, I believe you say in, in uh, Hebrew, cherubim. Right, Lloyd? Cherubim? Cherubim? Thank you. I am denotes plurality, meaning there's more than one. So he set the cherubim inside the inner room, and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of the 
wings of the one cherubim, it's just easier to say in English, so that the wing of the one touched the wall and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. So they're, they're angels. There's seraphim, there's cherubim, there's different types of angels. There's the living creatures in uh, Revelation 4 that are interesting to, 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 the depiction of them. They maybe are angels. They're maybe some type of, maybe they're God's pets. I don't know. Um, we won't know until we get there. But God has some fascinating creatures that serve him and surround him. And they're pretty powerful too as you read the, the scripture and learn about, about them. So what he does is he, he fashions them. And they're overlaid with gold. They're kind of like a wooden base. And they probably looked really beautiful. Right? Now the mercy seat again was, was, was on the Ark of the... Okay, let's go back to the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Because I have to tell you, before I, I confuse you, there's two schools of thought here, uh, and I'm going to tell you which one I fall into. Basically, there's two angels that are up top of the mercy seat, and you know it's that cover, and they're fashioned in gold, and their wings are kind of above their head facing each other, and each wing, like they touch each other there. Now, according to this, there is a 15-foot two 15-foot angels. Now, this is a box, roughly four feet by two feet. I can give you the exact measurements. Um, and some artists depict these tremendous angels on top of the box, two 15-footers with a wingspan of 30 feet. I don't think that's it. I think that there was two sets of angels, two to go on the box. And remember, this thing had to be moved around. If it was that big, it would any tipping, any movement would tip the thing over. So what I believe is that there were two angels on the box, and basically I read Exodus 25 before I came here, and that seems to, you know, in proportion to the box. But in the Holy of Holies itself, in this room, against the wall, were these two tremendous angels that were 15 feet tall fashioned, and they had this tremendous wingspan, and they were more like this, with one, one wing that touched the wall, with the other one that touched the middle of the room, then the other one touched his wing, and then his wing touched the wall. So it was 30 feet by 15 feet high. Of, you know, it must have been a sight to see when you walked into this room and saw these golden angels. And then you have the box with the angels on top of it. That's what I believe. I don't think that there's one set. I believe there's two sets. One for the box, mercy seat, and one for against the wall when you walked in. Why is this so important? In Isaiah 6, when, and I covered this last Sunday, two Sundays ago, when Isaiah actually gets a vision of, of the Lord, he sees, these, he sees the Lord in, all his, in, in, in somewhat of his glory, and he sees two seraphim, or two angels, on the side of him, and um, they're pretty powerful, and they have six wings. So God always seems to be flanked by these angels. He dispatches them to do his bidding. Remember when Daniel was praying in the Old Testament, and he sent Michael to help him out and deliver the hey, your prayer was answered and this is what God says. So God says, go, and the angels go. And the seraphim, when Isaiah has this vision, they are already telling um, Isaiah who God is in his glory. So they do a lot of things for God. They're his servants. Um, in that, that seat, in the middle of the two angels, when the high priest would come in and sprinkle the blood of the, of the sacrifice for the atonement of Israel, 
God said, I will dwell in that area. Right? It's pretty neat. Okay, verse 29. Then he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and outer sanctuaries, with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Not just flowers, but open flowers. Significance. And the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and outer sanctuaries. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive olive wood. The lintel and doorposts were one-fifth of the wall. The two doors were of olive wood, and he carved on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold, and he spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. That couldn't have been easy, by the way. Could you imagine all these figures, and they they overlay it with, I guess, a thin layer of gold, and it's got to be polished and real pretty. It took a long time to build this, by the way. Verse 33, so the the door of the sanctuary, he also made doorposts of olive wood, one-fourth of the wall. And the two doors were of cypress wood. Two panels comprised one folding door and two panels comprised the other folding door. Then he carved cherubim, palm trees, um, opened flowers on them and overlaid them with gold applied evenly on the carved work. And he built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams in the fourth year of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bol, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its details and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. They didn't just have Joe's construction crew working on the thing. They had a lot of people. They had artisans. They had carpenters. They had um, stone cutters. They had uh, the, you know, all these people with specialties. They probably had hundreds, if not thousands of people working on this temple, and it still took seven years to build. And it was glorious. Now, there's a few things that are repeated. The cherubim, the palm trees, and the open flowers. What's the symbolism? Well, we talked before, the gold represents deity, right? The open flowers, well, there's beauty there. There's also an open flower represents it's bearing something. It's time. It's blossoming. It's bearing fruit and maybe even perpetual life. You know, everything that God does has a meaning to it. I tell you, I'm, I'm as guy-guy as you can get. I love flowers. I think flowers are gorgeous. I mean, I love when the spring comes and they just open up, and it's just amazing to look at. Beautiful. beautiful. Um, palm trees, strength, stability, and a perfect climate. I mean, I can go back into teaching Genesis and talk about how everything was uniform temperature based on the greenhouse effect, and there was a, a film or a canopy of, of water vapor or water around the earth, and when the floods came, the Bible says that it came from underneath the earth, right? There's, there's different hydrospheres and different layers of waters. I have a well at my house. You know, you dig deep enough, your water will come up. And then it also talk about the, the waters that came from above and all the, how long it just kept raining. It, that just didn't come from clouds. That came from the hydrosphere. Now, when that all happened, then you had, because of the axis of the earth on 23 degrees, when the earth... Um, revolved around the sun, depending on where it was in its rotation, or its revolving, the sun would heat heats up. That's why we have our seasons. But according to the scripture, it wasn't always like that. It was always a tropical environment, hence the dinosaurs growing, and then eventually dying out. And this is a whole science lesson that we could talk about, but let me just say that palm trees represent the perfect climate. I'm really longing for spring, and I think God hates winter too, but I, I'm not sure. I'm just saying. 
right? But, uh, you know, I don't think snow was his plan in the beginning. So, I'm waiting for spring, and I'm also waiting for the coming kingdom. So I don't have to deal with this anymore. Let's just go for a recap here. The temple was a building. It was a fixed structure version of the tabernacle. The temple had two areas. If we could just go with the black and white again, the aerial view, if we could. Temple had two areas. The holy place, which were for the priest, and the holy of holies, high priest once a year. See, now, now you understand when I explain the whole angel thing. You see how their wings are touching each other and wall to wall, and then the ark with the two angels facing each other. It had outer and inner courts. Um, outside of these walls was the court of the priests. So there was some type of fence area around here, and the, um, the laver would be over here, and the, uh, the altar for burnt offerings would be here, and there would be a fence because that was the court of the priests. That's, nobody was allowed in that court except for the priests and their servants. Um, and they would officiate in the temple sacrifices in that court. Um, what else do we have? The burnt offerings, symbolism, expiation for our sins. Our sins have to be atoned for. So that's what the burnt offerings for. They were really a precursor or a picture of Christ. He gave himself, he gave his body as a burnt offering for us. Um, the washing, the labor, the constant washing of the hands, that was, listen, were the hands still dirty? Did there still be bacteria when they did it? But it was symbolic of when you go before God to be clean, you know, to, to the justification, sanctification. You know, and they would often wash. And just like for us, sanctification, for us as we grow in the Lord, as we get closer to Him, we should be less dirty from the world and more like Jesus Christ. So there's symbolism there. The holy place, okay, which is here, that you can't see it that easily, but again, the lampstands, the lampstands were to provide the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus used a lot of imagery. Do you realize this when you read especially John? Jesus used a lot of imagery from the temple about himself. I am the light of the world, right? The lampstands. In addition to the lampstands was the tables of showbread that only the priests could eat. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, right? right? Um, the washing, I am the living water. He's the, what keeps us clean. Um, in a spiritual sense. So there's a lot going on here. And the incense would be more as, as a picture of the, the prayers of the saints, and I believe that's Revelation 5 that speaks about that. Uh, the, a, lot of, a lot of angels, again, they flank God in his throne room. We see that in Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6. And the Shekinah glory of, or the glory of God, his physical presence, would be in the Holy of Holies on that mercy seat. And he would be there presently while the blood was sprinkled. And he would, um, he would accept it if it was done properly. Here's the big question for you. How could God be everywhere but be physically located in the Holy of Holies and on the mercy seat? It's a great question. Can God divide himself? The answer to that question is the same answer when people say, how could God be one and Jesus be on earth while the Father is in heaven and he's praying to him? Pretty good one, isn't it? So when a person of Jewish descent, which we want to lovingly lead them to their Messiah, asked that question, you could say, well, well how, did he, how was he everywhere, as David says in the Psalms, 
but was also physically located in the temple. How was he when Isaiah saw the vision of him, that his, the, his the smoke filled the temple, or, or the one part where it talked about the priest dedicating the temple, and this sort of smoke from God, just it, just, it was so overwhelming, they, they ran out of the temple, they couldn't stand in that type of presence. So how does God do that? Because he's God. <laughs> That's the third time I said that tonight. Sometimes I can just fall back on that answer. It's a no-brainer for me, all right? Because he's God. I don't know how else to say it. That's what I say. But it's the same thing, and that's what I love. The more I'm reading about the Old Testament and the temple and such, the more it makes sense, the New Testament. Okay, last two points or the last two pieces that were in the um, Ark of the Covenant were, according to Hebrews 9.4, the golden pot of manna, the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's rod that budded. So these were the three articles, or four, two tables of commandments, one pot of manna, and one rod of Aaron that budded inside this box that was the Ark of the Covenant. And, of course, we understand the Ten Commandments. That's an easy one. The golden pot of manna was what God supplied the Israelites in this desert land where nothing could grow, and he just kept raining it down from heaven and had all the vitamins and minerals and the nutrients that the Israelites needed. And even manna means what is it? They would look at it and go, what is it? I don't know, but God said eat it. Okay, <laughs> there's nothing else to eat here. So God sustained the children of Israel with this manna, which was, I guess, a type of bread. And Jesus is the bread of life. The other article that was in the um, Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's rod that budded. When God's people rebelled against him and tried to usurp leadership, um, Aaron's rod, when he threw it down, it was a dead staff, a dead piece of wood. It all of a sudden a dead piece of wood started, flowers were coming out from it. And that was God's sign that I've accepted Aaron's line uh, for the priests. So let's not have this discussion again. You know what I'm saying? Everybody threw their rods down and only it was Aaron's rod that came back to life. So there's a picture of um, sovereignty, right? God's sovereignty because he said so. He wants this line to be the line of the priests and you need to submit to their authority. Um, so that's, that's what was there. In closing, two things that we can take from this. We can take a lot from it, but I'm going to just share two. Number one is reminders. Reminders, reminders, reminders. You couldn't walk near the temple. You couldn't pass the temple. You couldn't walk in the temple without being reminded about a hundred times about God, whether it was the engravings, the carvings, the cherubim, the structure, the attachments, the, the pillars, which we'll talk about next, next time. On the structure, in the structure, outside the court, outside the structure. Why do God's people need to be reminded so much? Well, why do we go to church? <laughs> Sometimes we come to church and we hear a message and go, oh, I need to be reminded of that if the pastor's doing his job properly. I think about, I named my son Josiah from King Josiah. You know, they, the Israelites were so, you know, the, the Jewish people were were so messed up that um, it took somebody kind of cleaning out the temple to find God's law. And, jo and he bring it to the king Josiah. He goes, oh, this is, this is God's word. He proclaims a fast and he tears down the, the altars. He was a good king. That's why I named my son after him. But the people constantly had to be reminded. And even when they were reminded, they still went astray. They still defiled the temple and the chambers. And you can read the prophets and, and it speaks about that as well. As God's people in the New Covenant seal with the Holy Spirit, we should do a better job. Now, we don't always. 
we also need to be reminded. That's why God's Word is the living Word. You don't read it and say, I've read the Bible once, I'm good, I'm good to go, I don't have to read it again. I did that 10 years ago. No, it's the living Word. Every time, every time I teach a different book, I get something else out of it. And, and I've read the Bible a few times. So we need to be reminded, we need to read His Word. Sometimes we get caught up in thought processes and behaviors, and it's not godly. And sometimes we're so self-deluded that it needs somebody from the outside or some type of reminder, hopefully in the form of a good friend or mentor, to take you aside face-to-face like uh, the Apostle Paul did to Peter, I believe in Galatians, when Peter was playing the hypocrite and said, you're being a hypocrite. These were apostles. These were great men. And they still needed somebody to hold them accountable. Reminders, reminders, reminders in the form of his word, in the form of good people that we can have in our lives, etc. So that's the first thing. Did you remember what I said? I tried. Two. <laughs> outside versus inside. Again, what went on the, on the inside of the temple. You could have had the beautiful structure and all that stuff and the courts and all the pretty things, but if what was going on in the inside didn't go on, the people would be dead in their sins. So what was more important was the inside than the outside. And as Christians, especially American Christians, with all the images we see, I feel the most sad and pained for young girls, teenage girls. You know, because the images they're bombarded with, they don't know if they're coming or going. They're not sure what they should be, what they should look like. It's sad, right? Because we're so darn appearance-focused. Happens all the time. What's inside is more important than what's outside. 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Right? Even the prophet was caught up in, in the looks uh, you know, of Jesse's sons. Wow, that guy is big. He's very chiseled. He looks like he should be a king. God says, mm-mm, keep going. All the way down to, hey, uh, Jesse, you got any more kids? Yeah, there's a shepherd boy out in the field. Oh, this little ruddy guy. God's like, that's the one I want. You don't understand. I, God says, I can see the heart. You're just looking at the outward appearance. As a matter of fact, David's uh, brothers didn't do so good when he came to fighting Goliath, did they? As big and, and manly as they were, they were scared of Goliath. But David went out with his slingshot and his stones. And he says, I'll take out Goliath because God's with me. He's defied the living God. We're going to take him out. So as we, come, as we close, at the outset, we were probably thinking, Pastor Joe is going to teach us about a building project and put up some schematics and show us some two-by-fours. But the truth is we've learned more about the temple. We've learned more about God and more about ourselves through this lesson. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you. Let's